Welcome to Supreme Myths. Um, we have a very important and very serious topic to discuss today. My guest is Elisa Schatzman, who is the president and co-founder of the Legal Accountability Project. She is a graduate of Williams uh, College and Washington University Law School, and I'm really glad to have her here today to walk us through what is really a troubling and difficult issue. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on the show. It's my pleasure. So first of all, why don't you describe the Legal Accountability Project, how you got involved in it, and your own personal story and how this all developed. Sure. So the Legal Accountability Project is a nonprofit I launched with my law school classmate, basically seeking to ensure that as many law clerks as possible have a positive clerkship experience while extending support and resources to the ones who don't. I came to this advocacy work based on my personal experience with gender discrimination, harassment, and retaliation during and after my D.C. Superior Court clerkship. Um, and we're working on two major initiatives in collaboration with law schools beginning this fall. The first one is a centralized clerkships reporting database. And I should probably back up a little bit and explain the structure of clerkships, how people get them, why they get them. You know what, before so, we, hold on, Liz, before we do that, um, yeah. let, let's talk very generally about your personal experience. Um, that's really what drove you to this project. So let's, let's talk about that just a little bit. Go ahead. Of course, sure. Um, so I decided to serve as a law clerk in D.C. Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term because I wanted to be a homicide prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. And I knew that D.C. AUSAs appear before D.C. Superior Court judges. I hoped that I would develop a lifelong mentor-mentee relationship with this judge that he'd support me throughout my career. Unfortunately, that did not happen. Um, beginning just weeks into the clerkship, he'd kick me out of the courtroom telling me that I made him uncomfortable and he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk, told me I was aggressive and nasty and a disappointment. The day I found out that I passed the DC bar exam, so big day in any young attorney's life. He sure. called me into his chambers and he said, you're bossy and I know bossy because my wife is bossy. Wow. And it was just devastating. I mean, I remember just crying myself to sleep at night, wishing I could be reassigned to a different judge for the rest of the clerkship. My workplace didn't have an employee dispute resolution plan in place that might have enabled me to be reassigned. And folks advised me to stick it out. So we eventually transitioned to remote work during the pandemic, moved back to Philly to stay with my parents. And the judge basically ignored me for six weeks before he called me up and told me he was ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him. He did that over the phone? Yes, yes. Okay. So I reached out to D.C. Court's HR, and they told me there was nothing they could do because HR doesn't regulate judges, that judges and law clerks have a unique relationship. Then they asked me whether I knew that I was an at-will employee. We, we so, should explain that D.C. Superior Court judges are actually created by Congress, right? And those judges correct. have to be confirmed by the Senate, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. They are unique. They are an Article One court created by Congress. Judges are Senate confirmed for 15-year terms. Okay. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So I reached out to my law school for support and assistance, found out that this judge had a history of misconduct, that law school officials, including the clerkships director and some professors, were aware of this at the time I'd accepted the clerkship, and that they'd been withholding this information from me. Wow. Okay. Hold on right there. You're saying there were people, I hate to name names, but there were people at Wash U who most law schools have clerkship committees or centralized clerkship uh, processes to help students get these very valuable jobs. Um, and they were aware of his past behavior and didn't tell you about it? 
That's correct. Wow. That is correct. Okay. That's awful. Okay. It really, you know, it really is. And I, I share that to say that it's not rare. There are other law schools that are withholding this information with students. And in my work now, as I'm speaking with deans and clerkships directors, several, including deans from my law school, have said our policy is not to warn students about judges who mistreat their clerks, which is appalling. And of course, um, we all know that allegedly, and I'm saying allegedly three times here, allegedly, <laughs> allegedly, allegedly, there was a law professor at Yale who had a relationship with Justice Kavanaugh when he was Judge Kavanaugh. And there were allegations, I'm, again, I'm saying allegations, we don't know the truth, but they came out that, you know, he gen she generally sent to him women who she thought was attractive. Um, we don't know his side of that story, um, but that's a rumor going around. So I just wanted to put that out there. Go ahead. Yeah, and I think, I mean, law schools are really incentivized to funnel as many people into clerkships as possible, particularly the clerkships directors. Sometimes it comes from the top, from the deans, but uh, for some schools, it's definitely number of placements, period, good, bad, career-altering, devastating, as my story kind of illustrates. And it kind of iterates on from there. After I had these conversations with WashU, which were troubling, I eventually got back on my feet about a year later, secured my dream job in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, and moved back to D.C. And then in July of 2021, during uh, USAO training, I received really devastating news. I was told the judge for whom I clerked had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance, and that my job offer was being revoked. But let's let's and make that very yeah. let's make that very clear. I, I work for the Department yes. of Justice, so I know about these procedures. You yes. received a tentative offer, saying you you can have this job Intended, assume, yes. assuming Correct. you pass your your um, security clearance. We, we all got. I had the same thing when I was at DOJ, and, and, and then it came back that the judge had bad Matthew to whoever he was talking to, and then the offer wasn't so much withdrawn as canceled, I guess, right? Exactly. That's yeah. correct. Yeah, okay. But then a couple of days later, the USAO reached out to offer me a different interview offer for a different job with oh. the same office. That was also revoked based on the judge's same negative reference. Wow. Okay. So I, in rapid succession, just saw that this judge had enormous power to destroy my career and ruin my reputation. So at that point, I filed a judicial complaint with the D.C. Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure, which is the regulatory body for Article One judges in D.C., hired attorneys, and in the summer and fall of 2021, participated in the investigation into the now former judge. And we were partway through that investigation when some D.C. attorneys reached out to me and alerted me. The judge was under investigation for other misconduct. He was already on administrative leave pending this investigation at the time he'd filed the negative reference with me about with, with the DCUSAO about me. And I didn't get to see that reference until several months after that through private settlement negotiations between my attorneys and the former judges. And the claims were outrageous and misleading, but really by then the damage had been done, pretty much blackballed from what I thought was my dream job. Do you know what the other misconduct was? I do. Uh, yes. are, you at liberty, are you at liberty to talk about it? I'm not going to. Okay. It's, okay. He's no longer on the bench. You know, I okay. think the story's not about him. Fair it's enough. It's more. Fair enough. I, one, one more question about what led you to start your nonprofit. Um, once everyone knew that this judge was, A, no longer a judge, and B, no longer a judge, not of his own volition, I assume, did you reapply to the U.S. Attorney's Office and say, you know, th this person's been discredited separate from me? 
Can you reevaluate the situation? It's a good question. Um, so in January of 2022, pursuant to the terms of our private settlement, the judge, the former judge, issued a clarifying statement to the USAO about me, addressing some but not all of his outrageous claims, and we never received a response. Hmm. So I did apply in February or March and never heard back. Um, the folks who were involved in you know, rescinding my job offer no longer work there. Um, but it's been pretty much deafening silence from the DC USAO, and I've been out there speaking publicly about this for five, six months now. And I think it really just highlights the enormous deference that judges are afforded in even ex judges, even ex judges. Yes, I guess. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm yeah. really sorry about that whole personal story. Now I know you're not here to talk about your story, so I, I appreciate that. But I think we need to give the listeners a context for everything. So yeah. And Actually, I'm like happy to share my story because I think it underscores a lot of different issues. And now that I've launched this nonprofit, which we're going to talk about, one yeah. aspect of my work is sharing my story on a lot of law school campuses. And I really just feel like we need to have an honest discussion about the full range of clerkship experiences on every law school campus, good, bad, devastating, and everything else. And really every clerkship application cycle and one just passed. So much ink is spilled, so many words are shared discussing the best of circumstances. When a judge is a lifelong mentor, so many fond memories. Nobody talks about the worst of circumstances. I, um, I'm hesitant to say this, but I guess I'm going to. Um, I'm very old, and I clerked for a Northern District of Georgia judge uh, in 1983, many, many, many years ago. And actually, he was a very... He was, he was a very good, thoughtful judge. He was a Republican, um, and he was thoughtful, not like many Republican judges today. Yes, I just said that. Um, but this problem, of course, transcends political party affiliation. But anyway, he was a good man. And this is a long, long time ago, but he had a female law clerk in the 70s who breastfed in the office. And he, again, this is centuries ago, but he never really recovered from that until many, many, many years later when a lot of his ex-law clerks said, you have to get over that and start hiring women again, which he did, but it took him a while. Um, I hope we don't have judges like that today. Again, he was, he was elderly and that was 1983. But it was a really serious issue for a lot of us and unfortunate because unlike the judge you work for, I think, he was a very good man. He just had this gender block. I hope we don't have that much today, but I'm not sure. I mean, there are definitely still plenty of judges who don't hire women. And there was a Washington Post report a couple months ago about a leaked D.C. Circuit survey highlighting that there are some judges who still don't hire women. Yeah, it's just terrible. And, just terrible. And it's really, you know, the judiciary is just vociferously pushing back against accountability, but also transparency. They need to be conducting workplace culture assessments and climate surveys, and they need to be reporting those results. The first step toward crafting any effective solution, whether it's the things I'm advocating for or some smaller change or some change to even employee dispute resolution, is data collection, analysis, and reporting. When we don't know judges' hiring patterns, there's no way to correct it. So before, before we get to your, your nonprofit, I just want to make the audience aware of something that, that a lot of the audience will be aware of but may not be, which is there's a federal statute, Title VII, that prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, gender, national origin. Uh, and that statute applies to Congress. That statute applies to the executive branch. 
But for reasons known to nobody, <laughs> that statute doesn't apply either to federal judges or to judges of the D.C. Superior Court, which are not technically federal judges, but again, have to go through Congress and all that. What a terrible state of affairs that is. Um, and there'll be more talk about that issue, by the way, on this podcast later in September. But anyway, talk about your nonprofit. Sure. So the Legal Accountability Project is working on two major initiatives in collaboration with law schools to address the lack of data in the clerkship application space. The first is a centralized clerkships reporting database. And at this point, I should back up and explain there is really no way for law students, young attorneys to avoid judges with a history of misconduct. The judiciary doesn't report any data on this. Very few law schools collect any data on this. If I were to go to a law student and say, if you want to figure out who the friendly judges are to apply to, LGBTQ friendly judges are to apply to, or judges who hire racially diverse groups of people, how would you do that? Well, they would say, I have no idea. Right. We are trying to combat what exists right now, which is whisper networks, whereby right now, if you're a law student, you're encouraged to reach out to current and former clerks to get the full scoop about judges before you apply. I think that is inefficient at best and ineffective at worst because it puts the onus on current and former clerks, especially ones who face mistreatment, to be reliving these terrible experiences, to be sharing this each application cycle with the various folks who reach out to them. And historically, Law clerks who faced harassment are notoriously unwilling to report this back to their law schools. Very few law schools conduct any sort of post-clerkship survey to assess law clerks' experiences. Even the ones that do don't always make this information accessible to students. There are law schools that are not sharing all the information they receive about misbehaving judges with their students. And I speak with law school deans and administrators every day about this. You know, you're when, creating- you, when, when you mention judges who mistreat law clerks, I, I think um, I, I'm thinking now of, of Judge Kaczynski, for example. We'll get back to that later. Uh, a very famous and I can tell you brilliant federal judge who had notoriously awful practices towards women. He's now resigned because of them, thank goodness, but it took a long time. But the other thing I want to say is one of the reasons I had you on um, is people may say, ah, what's the big deal with law clerks? It's a really big deal, not only at the level you were clerking on, but in the, in, the, in the federal district courts, court of appeals, and even at the Supreme Court. So I wanted to just provide two examples really quickly. Um, the judge, and I've talked about this before, the judge prior, chief judge of 11th Circuit to Justice Thomas Pipeline, which at least is 15 law clerks, um, they go on to become judges and people of power. Uh, I have a lot to say about that pipeline. That's a different podcast. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, an American hero, in my opinion, before she came on the court, while on the court, um, and this is terrible to say, I believe the data shows she hired one African-American law clerk during her entire time on the Supreme Court of the United States. And, and, and if maybe it was two, but I think it's one. And, you know, liberals don't, don't like to talk about that, but it's really a blemish on her, I think, career in some ways. But we never talk about law clerks. We don't talk about law clerks. One last thing, I'll put it back to you. Uh, I ran for many years our Bleckley of Court here in Atlanta, uh, where judges, lawyers, and law students get together to talk about professional practices, ethics, and litigation. But because I'm a con law guy, we also talked a lot about con law. But anyway, we talked about everything. 
We talked about the most controversial issues. We talked about sodomy when Lawrence versus Texas came out. Um, we talked about affirmative action, all these things. There was one thing they wouldn't let me do, and that was a program on law clerk practices, law clerk hiring, and how important law clerks are to our judicial system. They would talk about the most controversial Supreme Court cases, but they wouldn't talk about that. I'm so glad you're coming out and making this an issue. So I didn't mean to interrupt, but I wanted to say that. No, I'm glad you brought up the pipeline issue because there's two things with that. I mean, today's law clerks are tomorrow's big law associates and big law partners, AUSAs, federal defenders, law school professors, and judges. So judges who are harassing their clerks, it both drives diverse clerks, women, minorities, LGBTQ folks from the profession and making our profession less diverse, mm -hmm. our judiciary less diverse. It also sends a message to the white male clerk who's perhaps standing by, this is okay behavior when you ascend. So when we think of who ascends through our profession and who ascends through our judiciary, it is enormously important. These are the newest members of our profession, law clerks. They take a pay cut, so they might move to a faraway place for a year or two, thinking they are going to launch their careers, learn from like a life tenured Senate confirmed judge. And the fact that we are subjecting these folks to disproportionate harassment, driving them from the profession, it's just unconscionable. So. It, it is. So, so one of your projects is to go to law schools. I wish I could say you're going to succeed in this. I, I, I think you're up against it. But to convince them to have a more accurate reporting system uh, of law clerk applications, who gets hired and all that, right? Yeah, so we are creating a centralized clerkships reporting database where law clerk alumni will report into the database, create an account with us, and report anonymously on their judge and their clerkship. Good, bad, medium, we want to hear everything. Our survey questions are extensive and elucidate lots of info you'd want to know before clerking. Certainly, misconduct is one aspect, but it's also writing experience, courtroom experience, how does the judge provide feedback, can I take vacation, all sorts of information you'd want to know before clerking. And if your law clerk alumni are reporting into the database and the law school is participating, the students can read all of the reports when they're considering a clerkship or a judicial internship and externship. Not just their alumni's reports, but the reports from everybody. It's the best way to centralize and democratize the information about judges. And I think people are going to be very surprised and impressed in the legal profession this year to see who's partnering with us. We're having those conversations right now and we're gonna be making some big announcements this fall. There are a lot of deans and clerkship directors that are very willing to engage with us. So I, we're I'm, excited. I'm really glad to hear that. I'm a little nervous about the anonymous part of that because anybody can say anything anonymously. Are you gonna have a vetting system or some way to verify? Great question. Um, I'll answer that in two ways. Sure. First of all, while law clerks will be reporting anonymously, there's an optional last page where they can provide their name to students considering this clerkship. So not all will report anonymously, but some will. We're going to have law schools send the survey link using the email addresses they have for their alums to the past 10 to 20 years worth of law clerk alumni. That's how we will, on a continuous basis, verify that they are alums from that institution. In terms of vetting the veracity of the reports, so we do not have a culture of false allegations against judges. We have a culture of gross underreporting and fear, fear of retaliation by the judges who harass us and fear of retaliation, reputational harm in the legal profession. I am not concerned about the veracity of the reports. We are going to be a platform, so we will have Section 230 immunity as a publisher, right. but I am not at all concerned. Okay. 
about false allegations against judges. I, I'd like to make another observation about all this. Um, for most of my career, and I, I clerked both, both district court and court of appeals, for most of my career until about, I want to say, well, I have to say, until Trump, um, there was really no such thing as a bad clerkship. And and especially, especially at um, maybe top 50 schools, but not top 10 schools, which like so Vanderbilt, where I went, would be a 17th or 18th ranked school. You know, at, the, at, at schools like from Vanderbilt on down to number 50, clerkships are tough to get, and they are really important to one's career. And if one wants to teach, a court of appeals clerkship is even more important. These are really hard to get jobs. And I know people who clerked for judges they didn't like, but still reported back, it, it was still a good clerkship. Now, I think, especially at the elite schools, there are judges, lower court judges, for whom students will not clerk um, for a number of different reasons. There are, sadly, lower court judges who were confirmed by the last Congress who in their past said anti, um, really said awful things about LGBTQ issues, about women, um, and even about racial minorities. Uh, and they're still judges. Um, so I think the world is changing. And I, I say all of that to say, I think the world is ready <laughs> for this project. So I'm really happy you're doing it. I definitely think the world is ready for the project because I speak with law students at law schools every day. I speak with deans, clerkship directors, faculty members. People are very willing to engage on this issue. And Law students understand that these issues are pervasive and unaddressed in both the federal and the state courts. They know that they do not have the information they need before applying. And it's interesting. I mean, there are some misaligned incentives for a couple clerkship directors who really are focused on the number of placements, period. And what I try to say to those clerkship directors and the more challenging administrations we encounter is this initiative is going to bolster everyone's clerkship program. Why is that? There are groups of people at law schools right now, historically marginalized groups, women, LGBTQ folks, minorities, who either decide not to clerk or apply less broadly and less ambitiously. Because right now, a clerkship application process is a black box. They just don't know who the friendly judges are and who the not so friendly ones are. If they had more information, if there were more transparency in the process, they would clerk. This will bolster everybody's numbers. So I definitely think the time is now for this project, and we are excited for what we're seeing. Um, and I really just want to encourage a culture of reporting and honest discussion about the full range of clerkship experiences. Well, on that point, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, but on that point right yeah, there, yeah, um, mm -hmm. I have a very, I'm, I'm, you know, I have my share of controversial views out there. Um, I am not capable of getting. I, the word important is what I mean, but, but, but you know, I mean, people who other people listen to, um, to address the issue, which I think is incredibly important of the, not the issue you're dealing with, but of lower court judges using law clerks to basically write their opinions. Um, now, this is my podcast, and once a podcast, I have to refer to retired judge um, Dick Posner because that's just the rule of this podcast. Uh, Posner wrote his own first drafts all the time. He wrote 2,000 or 3,000 opinions, all he wrote the first time. And then clerks double-checked it, triple-checked it, edited it, said, Judge Posner, this is crazy, this is wrong, whatever. But he may be the only judge in the United States who used to do that. Um, I know that's a little bit sideways to your project, but when you said more transparency, I wish we can get more transparency out of who does the real work <laughs> for lower court judges. Definitely. Judges. And that's related to what we were speaking about a minute ago about law clerk hiring. If you're thinking that if we're saying that law clerks are doing all this work, that they are writing the first drafts of opinions, and they most certainly are, 
if you're only hiring a certain subset of the population, and what we're talking about here is white men in the federal right. courts, right. that certainly skews the opinions. And let me be clear, it's not just writing the first draft of the opinions. <clears throat> not, not in the Court of Appeals, but in the district courts across America, they have shelves. Uh, oh, they used to have shelves. I'm not sure now. Maybe it's all computerized now. I don't know. But the point is, when a big, complicated summary judgment motion comes in, usually it is the law clerk not only writes the draft opinion, but writes it before the judge even sees the briefs. So the law clerk is not just writing a draft opinion. The law clerk is saying how the case should come out. And judges will say, yeah, but I look at it and make sure it's all right. But if they haven't read the briefs carefully... The law clerk can, of course, present an argument that's going to be difficult for the judge to disagree with unless the judge has gone to the primary sources. I may get in trouble for saying this, but I think a lot of lower court judges don't go to the primary sources. Oh, there are enormous transparency issues just across the judiciary. I mean, one thing that's been suggested to me is a time study to see how judges are spending their time. I think that would be enormously interesting as well. Yes. Federal judiciary is never going to go for that. No. But I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think transparency is important in all of these areas, in an area of the government that really just has been notoriously opposed to any sort of transparency. Okay, so you said you're, you're not, you're, your nonprofit had two things going on. You described the first. What's the second? Yeah, we are doing a workplace assessment of the federal and state judiciaries. It's a climate survey that will finally answer the question, how pervasive is harassment in the judiciary? It's going to elucidate data on the types of clerks facing mistreatment and the types of judges doing the mistreating. We are sending this assessment to the past 10 to 20 years worth of law clerk alumni at a variety of law schools. Um, and it's going to be geographically diverse and rankings diverse in terms of the law schools that are sending it. Law schools that assist us in this effort will be helping with a first of its kind data collection and analysis initiative. Law, clerk, law schools that refuse are going to be hindering our efforts to finally bring some transparency to the judiciary. So we're very excited about it. Uh, stakeholders are very excited to see this data. And we are committed to publicly reporting the results, whatever they are, on our website, in legal scholarship, to the ABA, to the judiciary. The federal judiciary has been not only notoriously unwilling to conduct a climate survey, but they're certainly not willing to report the results publicly, whatever they are. And we think of the rare leaked surveys, like the DC Circuit, um, in 2021, 57 employees, judiciary employees in the circuit um, responded they had faced harassment or retaliation. An additional 134 employees had witnessed or heard about these problematic behaviors. What we know anecdotally is there is an enormous data mismatch between the number of people facing mistreatment in federal and state courthouses and the judiciary's reporting of these results through the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, which is the formal complaint process whereby law clerks can complain about the judges who harass them. Yeah, that's all, um, I think, both true and sad, and we need to fix it. Um, there's, and you're, you're doing a great job putting us on the right track there. Um, there's something that's pending. Before, so I've, um, I'm, I work closely sometimes with an organization called Fix the Court, uh, run by a, a fantastic person named Gabe Roth. I'm going to give him a shout-out. Um, and uh, there's something called the Judiciary Accountability Act, I think, <clears throat> that's pending in Congress. That's super important. And I know you wrote a, a statement, a written statement for hearings on that act. Can you talk about that act a little bit? 
Sure. The Judiciary Accountability Act, or the JAA, that's H.R. 4827 and S2553, is enormously important legislation. It would extend Title VII to judiciary employees. Yes! Law Sorry. <laughs> law clerks and federal public defenders who currently cannot sue their harassers and seek damages for harms done to their lives, careers, and future earning potentials. Um, it would amend Title 28 of the U.S. Code to specify that gender discrimination, harassment, and retaliation are judicial misconduct. It would also specify the judges who retire, resign, or die amid a misconduct investigation, that investigation won't cease. It would standardize employee dispute resolution plans and would finally impose some data collection and analysis and sunlight efforts on the judiciary. They would be forced to report on their hiring. They would be reporting on judicial complaints and it's enormously important. Do you see any chance of that law passing? So it's an uphill battle, but honestly, I, I am optimistic. I mean, the House Judiciary hearing for which I submitted written testimony in March went very well. The House bill has 26 co-sponsors. I think the Senate bill has about six, and we're hopeful there'll be a Senate hearing this year. Um, but I think the legislation has more support in both houses of Congress right now than the number of co-sponsors would represent. I mean... This is a bipartisan issue, and I'm writing about this in forthcoming scholarship in the Harvard Journal on Legislation. There is a conservative case to be made for the JAA. Both Democratic and Republican judicial appointees harass their clerks. Both liberal and conservative clerks face harassment from the most powerful members of the profession. And when we think about the next generation of progressive and conservative thinkers, these folks are being driven from the profession. And when we think of the House and Senate Judiciary Committees, particularly the Republican members, many of them clerked, many of their staffers clerked. What would all these people have done if they'd faced harassment and during their clerkships? I mean, would they have been driven from the profession? That would have been such a waste of their training and talents. And we really just need to be thinking of the next generation of young attorneys and making workplaces safer for them. No discussion of judicial misbehavior, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in America today cannot include a discussion of Judge Alex Kaczynski, because I think there is there are lessons there for everybody. And um, so just for the non-lawyer audience out there, and I do have a lot of non-lawyer listeners, um, he was, along with Posner and a few others, among the elite of the elite of um, <clears throat> lower federal court judges. He clerked for Justice Kennedy. He sent a lot of clerks to Justice Kennedy <clears throat> during his time. I'm sorry, I have a little bit of a cold. Um, and uh, several brave women came out a few years ago to talk about what an enormous, know the word for this, alleged harasser he was. And he, he, But here's what I want to talk about. So um, he was a guest at a lot of law school events because he was very smart and very funny. Um, and uh, in fact, he came to Georgia State many years, a few years ago. Um, and there were many of us, and I'm so embarrassed by this. I, I admit I was wrong, and I've said publicly I was wrong, and I, and I apologize. My wife and I have a rule with each other. When we're clearly wrong, we say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. Um, this is much more important than that. Um, even after hearing rumors about Judge Kaczynski, I was interested in him coming to the law school. And I, find, I view myself as a progressive male and a feminist, and I've always been a feminist on virtually every issue. These women were incredibly brave to do this. It's incredibly hard to do that, and it's incredibly – I feel a lot of shame in not really listening to the rumors. 
how do we get past all of that? Because I, again, I view myself as someone who is really very feminist, and yet I didn't really listen. I will in the future, but I didn't listen to those rumors. Any thoughts on all that? Absolutely. I mean, this is an area where larger cultural change in the legal community is desperately needed. And I hope that by sharing my story and putting a personal face and personal story on abstract issues, I'm empowering more law clerks to speak out, to share their stories, and for current law clerks and the next generation to stand up for themselves. It is enormously difficult right now to speak out in the face of workplace mistreatment. And what we need to say to legal employers and to all the professors and deans and administrators, including the folks who listen to your podcast, right. you need to believe and affirm clerks. You need to encourage everyone to bring their full selves to work every day. And right now, the culture is silence and deifying the judiciary. We are taught beginning in law school that judges res uh, deserve absolute respect. Not if you take deference. my classes, but go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, but in most sectors of the legal community still, there's just this culture of disbelieving law clerks and deifying judges. I mean, I was told on numerous occasions over the past couple of years, and I still hear people say this, the right professional decision would have been not to report the mistreatment I experienced. I must have done something wrong because the judge hired me in the first place. If you are a legal employer, if you are a professor, you need to be encouraging law clerks to stand up for themselves. Um, and look, I mean, the issue, one of many issues with Kaczynski is there were, even when there were all these rumors, people would still go into that clerkship saying, well, I can handle it. Well, nobody should have to. Yes. And the issue I'm trying to raise, the retaliation aspect, the long-term negative relationship aspect is for people who go into that clerkship, they're mistreated and they stay silent. There is no guarantee that the judge won't still try to ruin your career. There is no guarantee that you won't still be driven from the profession. We should not be putting anyone in that sort of dangerous work environment. Yeah, I agree 100% with that. And I, I do think, <clears throat> I think the most important part of your project is the part you're talking about. We need to have a federal judiciary that A, under law, is not allowed to discriminate. And B, when they do discriminate, they shouldn't be able to hide behind a curtain. But a secondary part of your project, I think it's secondary, but I think is not as important, but really very important, is to bring to the public the important role law clerks play in making law. And, um, you know, I have to say this, if our federal judiciary is going to be made up of primarily white male law clerks, that's a real problem. I don't know the numbers. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't, but I suspect do you know the numbers? We don't, we, there's, there's no database, right? I think yeah, I think it's about 79% of federal law clerks are white males. I think NALP releases a study every couple of years. That's insane. So. I mean, that's just, that's just absolutely insane. And uh, I think that obviously that's the secondary, the hiring practices as opposed to what happens once you're hired is a secondary part of your project. But it's unbelievably important. Oh, yeah. Diversity issues are incredibly important, increasing diversity in chambers and on the bench. But I just also feel that we can't decouple conversations about diversity from conversations about judicial accountability, because right now it is the non-white and female and LGBTQ populations who are disproportionately facing harassment in chambers. Certainly not exclusively. I received lots of outreach from straight white males telling me they were harassed by judges, too. Yeah. Um, but we can't just increase diversity in chambers and increase diversity on the bench and feel like we're going to solve all our problems. They're related concepts. I, I agree. And I also think we really the first step has to be 
to get Congress to amend Title VII to apply to the federal judiciary. Now, I have to say, going back to my specialty, con law, if Congress were to do that and, and, and include the Supreme Court in that um, law, which it should do in my opinion, I believe the justices would argue that's a violation of separation of powers. I would argue back that's ridiculous and absurd and too bad, so sad for you guys and women um, on the Supreme Court. But I do think they will argue that. We don't have to get into that today. Um, but there's no question, I think, that this law could be applied to at least lower federal court judges and state judges. I, there's no issue there, I wouldn't think. I mean, there are no legitimate issues. I Fair. mean, there are nonsense arguments that are made about Fair. judicial independence and judicial Fair. supremacy. But Fair. yeah, I mean, it's the way judges treat their clerks has nothing to do with judicial independence in their rulings. We're not saying you should sue judges for their rulings. Sure. We're saying if you are a judge and you harass your clerks, you are not above the laws you interpret and enforce. Or if you and only right hire now, white, or if you only hire white males, or never hire people of color, like frankly Justice Ginsburg did. Absolutely, and I think. Like continuing to exempt the judiciary from Title VII really sends a message to misbehaving judges. You are above the law. I think that's incredibly dangerous. I think we should leave it there because that's so right and so obvious and so persuasive. And we simply have to drum that into the heads of all Congress people. The federal judiciary <clears throat> should not be above the law, period. I am so sorry for what happened to you. I applaud your courage. I applaud your bravery. Um, if someone is listening to this who is a law clerk and is suffering from this kind of harassment, what should they do? And then we'll end it. Yeah. Um, take notes, document everything, confide in people and keep track of who you confided in. Reach out to an attorney or reach out to me and I will connect you with someone. And, you know, stand up for yourself. Where, File a complaint. Where can they find you, Elisa? Where, where can they yeah. find you? Um, on Twitter, at Aliza Schatzman, or LinkedIn, Aliza Schatzman, or um, the Legal Accountability Project's website, which is legalaccountabilityproject.org. Awesome. And Thank you so much. Some, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. This is an incredibly important issue, and I really applaud you trying to change it, shine light on it, and make some progress on it. Thank you so much. Thank you.